Um, all right, well, last day, congratulations, you've made it. I know we're all tired and ready to move, so I'm going to try to run through this fairly quickly, maybe to get it all done before break, and that'll leave a lot of time for uh, questions and uh, discussion. Um, so today I want to talk about the chapter on the uh, nomadic uh, war machine, uh, which I think is like one of the best sections in Deleuze and Guattari's work at all, simply because it deals with a really interesting question that, to my knowledge, no one else has ever really tried to answer. And their question is this, and it's not a question that really arose in, um, in Anti-Oedipus, is, is there a self-formation uh, that's collective, that's organized, uh, and that's not a state? <laughs> and not only is it not a state, nor is it a code or a territory, but it's it's organized on the basis of principles that are opposed to the state. So uh, Antiochus is written shortly after May 68, uh, which is you know this seemingly spontaneous movement, but then very quickly, you know, is co-opted and, and taken over uh, by uh, the state. So that's one question: Why do revolutions always seem to fail? And part of the answer seemed to be well, because the state is the mechanism of repression, and it quickly takes them over. And so then the question was, and Deleuze started writing the nominology even before Anti-Oedipus was published, apparently, according to Guattari, was this question, is there a form of organization that is not a state? So if the question of revolution is not what's the best state, how can the party take over the state, how can we have a communist state or a you know, right democratic state, is there a social organization that is not a state, but is collective, organized, has its own principles, and in fact is opposed to the state. So that's what the basic problem is of uh, the nomadic war machine. It's, it's a somewhat uh, weird title because the war machine has a purely external relationship to war from their point of view and a purely contingent relation uh, to nomads. So nomadism is simply a way of getting at what the war machine is, and war is sort of a secondary supplementary consequence, but not really part of the definition of what the war machine is. So it's an odd phrase because neither terms are really uh, completely uh, accurate. And let me just read uh, before I jump in. This is from an, uh, a talk Deleuze gave shortly after Anti-Oedipus, sort of describing what he was trying to do. do. He says, today we're looking for a new mode of unification in which, for example, the schizophrenic discourse, the intoxicated discourse, the perverted discourse, the homosexual discourse, all the marginal discourses can subsist so that all these escapes and dis discourses can graft themselves onto a war machine that won't reproduce a state or a party apparatus. For that very reason, we no longer want to talk about schizoanalysis because that would amount to protecting a particular type of escape, schizophrenic escape. What interests us is a sort of link that leads us back to the direct political problem. And the direct political problem for us is more or less this. Until now, revolutionary parties have constituted themselves as synthesizers of interests rather than functioning as analyzers of mass and individual desires. Or else what amounts to the same thing, revolutionary parties have constituted themselves as embryonic state apparatuses instead of for forming war machines irreducible to such apparatuses. So the question is, is there a social formation for them that's constituted on a line of flight and does not reproduce um, the state? So I, I'm going to go at this in terms of three themes. The first is then exteriority, uh, which is another way of talking about the line of flight, and then uh, nomadism, and then war. So those are the three things I want to do as quickly as possible. So this is our first axiom then about uh, 
the war machine. They say the war machine is exterior to the state apparatus. Uh, so it functions in an opposite way than the state does. If the state is an apparatus of capture, that functions by interiorizing things into itself. Uh, the war machine is something that functions on the basis of exteriority. It exteriorizes itself. Um, and what's great about this chapter, I find, is because the, they isolate something that's very difficult to isolate, and they try to explain why it's hard to isolate. And one of the reasons, they say, is that thought and philosophy itself has often modeled itself on the concept of the state, explicitly so in Kant and Hegel, where realized reason is identified with a kind of du jure state, and the state was identified as the becoming of reason itself. And then when you read philosophy, you get an enormous number of concepts and themes that are derived from the state, categories derived from the state, like a republic of free spirits, the contract, the tribunal of reason, judgment, recognition, method, question and response, inquiries into the understanding, the pure right of thought. All of these are categories derived from the state and its legislative and juridical organization. So if thought itself, philosophy, thinks in terms of the categories of the state, then it's difficult to find uh, ways to think about exteriority. And in fact, you could say that in the history of philosophy, in order to comprehend something, means to internalize it, to interiorize it in something, whether it's a concept, interiorize it in one's head, interiorize it in the subject. So the very movement of thought seems to be aimed at some sort of interiority. Deleuze says Hume was one of the first people to overturn this, you know, to say exteriority, the exteriority of relations is the direction of flow. In fact, Foucault, at the beginning of uh, the second volume of History of Sexuality, when he's trying to explain why he changed his project entirely, he says, well, look, what is the activity of thought if not thinking differently <laughs> and making one think something other than what is thinking now? You externalize yourself rather than uh, internalize. So that's a problem, then, because thought itself seems to be based on interiority rather than exteriority. So I won't go through all this, but the, if you've read the chapter, they begin by like giving some hints in various domains where they seem to get um, yeah, hints of a war machine. One of them is in game theory. Chess, they say, is like the state because it has a striation and pieces that have a very definitive identity, whereas Go is based on exteriority. I'm not completely sure how to play the game, but I guess you turn pieces over and then that changes certain other pieces, but they're external relations. It's not that each piece has a certain identity interior to itself. Uh, in mythology, they cite uh, Georges Dumézil, who had analyzed all of Indo-European mythology and found that there were three basic figures in most uh, mythic structures, the king, the priest, and the warrior. The king and the priest were functionaries of the state, um, but the warrior uh, was something outside these functions and always portrayed as eccentric, stupid, deformed, illegitimate, mad, usurping, sinful. The warrior always seemed to have a different status than the king and the priest. And so their theory is going to be that the war machine gets appropriated by the state, but it's never identified with the state. And then finally they complain about that history itself tends to be written from the viewpoint of states. It's a succession of states, a succession of empires. And so anything that's external to the state doesn't get taken up into history itself. So finding a way to isolate this phenomenon of the war machine or nomadism is, um, is hard because everything seems to be set uh, against it. Uh, so that's the first point, exteriority. Uh, the state apparatus is a form of interiority. It's an apparatus of capture. Nomadism, the nomadic war machine, is a pure form of exteriority. Second point, then, the nomads. Um, 
Their second axiom is that the war machine was the invention of the nomads, and they put forward this thesis um, not as if we should all live as nomads, but simply in the historical interest of saying the concept of the war machine was actualized, as it were, historically by nomadism. Although it is by no means the only form or the only place where the war machine exists. And when Deleuze defines what a nomad is then, he defines it in a way everyone who cites the nomadology ignores, <laughs> usually, because you think of a nomadism means we shall move around a lot and cross borders. Deleuze's definition of nomads is this, nomads are those who do not move. <laughs> so it's the opposite of one, what one thinks. They do not move, they cling to a smooth space upon which they remain immobile. What he means by this is taken from Arnold Toynbee in his great eight-volume study of history, which I thought was surprising Deleuze would take so much from, and then uh, discovered he was a student of Bergson's, or his whole historiography was Bergsonian, one of the few people to kind of do history from the Bergsonian perspective. But Toynbee had argued that in response to the problem of the desiccation of the steps, in other words, then drying out after the last ice age, a bifurcation was produced in history. In order to avoid extinction, the inhabitants could do one of two things. They could either migrate, following their prey, as they shifted with these changing climatic alterations, and he thought this led to Egypt and Sumer and the civilizations in the Nile and Tigris valley, uh, valleys, or they could remain on the steppes, remain in the desert as nomads, but then fundamentally alter their mode of existence. And this is a quote from Toynbee. If migrants change their habitat so as not to change their habits, the nomads fundamentally change their habits so as not to change their habitat. So they were people who did not move. Right? As the desert was expanding, they set, stayed there and changed their habits, changed their mode of existence, rather than move and follow the better climatic conditions. So in the losing language, they entered into a becoming. They remained immobile, but they became something other. Moreover, then Toynbee says, if the migration solution led to the domestication of plants and agriculture, nomadism led to the domestication of animals. In other words, in order to survive in the desert or on the steppes, the nomad attached itself not to vegetation, which is a static form of life, but rather to animals kind of dynamic, mobile form of life, they entered into a becoming animal. So you get the Eskimos harnessed to their dogs, the Bedouins galloping on their camels, and especially in Central Asia, the nomads, Genghis Khan, and so forth, capturing the strength and speed of the horse. This is why uh, John was talking about the stirrup. That's uh, one of the questions. How, how did the nomads harness the mobility and power of animals in order to survive in the desert, whether it's an ice desert or a sand desert, uh, and whatever the case is, they entered into a becoming animal. So they do not move. I mean, they obviously move on their animals, but fundamentally they stay put and change their habit rather change their habits rather than change their habitat, which is a theme Deleuze develops at several points um, in his books, in his uh, books, what he calls uh, a voyage in intensity. Two ways of traveling. One is in, in extension, in space, but there are also voyages in intention, 
which is what he thinks you know, schizophrenics do, or a delirium is it's a voyage, a traveling on one's own body without organs. In fact, in an interview, Deleuze was asked why he hated to go to conferences and he didn't like to travel much. And he goes, look, I'm like everyone else. If I don't travel in extension, I have my own immobile voyages that I take internally. And that's, that's sort of what nomadism is. Um, next point. Um, when he gets around now to defining the concept of the war machine based on this notion that nomads are people who do not move, he gives three fundamental definitions, and I'm just going to look at two of them. The first one is geometrical. It's a question of how nomads occupy space. Uh, There's a distinction between smooth space and striated space. Um, the second component is arithmetic. It has to do with number, how you organize people in a war machine. If you don't have classes, you don't have castes, you don't have lineal organizations like in the um, primitive codes. How do you organize people? You organize them in terms of number. That's why armies are organized in terms of battalions and so forth and so on. And that's a question we want to address. What's the significance of the numerical organization of people? Not that it's better or worse than any other way to organize people, but it's the specificity of the war machine. And then the last uh, one is an effective component, where they try to draw a distinction between weapons and tools. If tools are something associated with the state, weapons are associated with the war machine, how do you distinguish them? Well, I'm just going to leave that to the side, just uh, in, in the interest of time. And then we'll get to the question of war. So I'm going to look at these first two components, the geometrical component having to do with space, and then the numbering component having to do with the organization of people. So first of all, then, the war machine can be distinguished from the state form by the manner in which it occupies space and time. In other words, it's a physical system. It occupies space and time in a particular way that's different from the way state, the state occupies uh, space and time. We've already talked about the fact that one of the fundamental tasks of the state is to striate the space over which it reigns, whereas the war machine can be defined by the way in which it creates and occupies a smooth space. So you have a desert, sand desert, ice desert, it's a smooth space. You don't striate it, you don't put fences there, you don't put roads, you don't cut it up. The war machine is a way of creating and occupying a smooth space. That therefore, you can see in the end, cuts across striations and is opposed by its very nature to any kind of state apparatus. Three ways of thinking, uh, and I want to say this too. Um, one of the reasons I call this the uh, nomadology, uh, not only because of uh, nomads, but Deleuze notes that the Greek term nomos, which now we think of as meaning law, before it became, came to designate the law, originally designated a mode of distribution. Precisely, it was a term for that area that lay outside the Greek city where your animals were allowed to roam and you know, eat, but it was, it was opposed to the, uh, the place of the uh, city. It referred not to a parsoning out of land, but to a scattering of animals. And then it was only when the agrarian question came to the foreground that the nomos eventually came to designate the principle at the basis of laws and rights, and then became identified with the law itself. But originally, nomos was a term to designate the space outside the city, this open, smooth space. In any case, space. Three ways of then thinking about uh, this concept of smooth space. I'm just going to use point, line, surface, and how they function differently in states and in the war machine. First, the point. 
In striated space, lines and trajectories tend to be subordinated to points. One goes from one point to another, from Chicago to New York. And the striations exist to regulate movement from point to point. In smooth space, it is just the opposite. Points are subordinate to the line. In other words, they are subordinate to the trajectory or the journey that one is taking over smooth space. The nomad is not ignorant of points. There are water, water points, dwelling points, assembly points. But these points are subordinated to the paths they determine on this open and smooth space. The water point is reached only to be left behind. Dwellings are all constructed in terms of a journey that is forever mobilizing them and are tied not to a territory, but to an itinerary. So the tipi, an igloo, a bow, the very dwellings that they live in are not territorial, but tied to a trajectory or an itinerancy moving across this open space. So in this sense, they say the earth ceases to be a land and simply becomes the support for the movements of the nomads and these various vectors or trajectories that they trace over the open space. Moreover, these directional vectors are, termed, are determined less by visual coordinates than by sonorous or tactile traits. And this is a quote from Thousand Plateaus. There is no line separating earth and sky, and it's describing ice and sand deserts. There is no intermediate distance. There is no perspective, no contour. Visibility is limited. And yet, there is an extraordinarily fine topology that relies not on points or objects, but rather on hexaides, on sets of relations. The desert not only has oases, which function as fixed points, but shifting undulations of sand or snow. There's winds, there's the song of the sand, or the creaking of ice, temporary vegetation that shifts location depending on rains, local traits, in other words, that determine the direction of the nomadic vectors and alters their cartography. One way of answering the question, like how did the Vikings manage to sail to North America lacking a compass, lacking the usual means of navigation. They say, look, it's not a visual set of visual coordinates. It's this complicated set of sonorous and tactile traits that the nomad uses to cross this open space and to find their uh, place in it. So that's the point. Second point here, the line, how the line shifts. Consequently, the notion of the line takes on two different natures in striated and smooth space. The line in striated space is dimensional or metric marking out volumes and forms, grids and bearings, whereas the line in smooth space is not dimensional, but purely directional. It marks out a pure vector that constructs space by local operations and changes in direction. But differently, one can say that striated space is defined by movement, whereas smooth space is defined by speed. Movement is extensive, Speed is intensive. It's kind of internal becoming. So in this sense, they say that nomadism, the nomad is someone who re-territorializes on deterritorialization itself. Their territory is a line of flight. Their territory is a deterritorialized movement. It's a vector. It's a directional line occupying an open space. 
So they say the nomad is the deterritorialized being par excellence. And then thirdly, first point, and then line, the difference between line, lines that define dimensions and lines that mark out pure vectors and directions. And now uh, the surface, and there's a similar distinction uh, here. And a good example of the question of the surface is, is the sea, the ocean, which is perhaps the smooth space par excellence. You know, your ship goes down and you're in your lifeboat. You have, you know, late at night, in the middle of the night, and there's, it's cloudy and there's no stars. You have no coordinates whatsoever. Smooth space, no way of knowing where you are. So if the sea is the smooth <laughs> space par excellence, uh, they know, and it was also the first to encounter the demands of an increasingly strict striation in response to the problem of navigation in open water. And it's a question of how did Europe colonize the rest of the world. It was partly through the development of navigational techniques. At a certain point, ships could never go past the equator because they lost sight of the North Star, which is the only thing they had to uh, get their bearings. Uh, so one of the great movements, you could say, in, the hist in history was to find a way to striate the ocean. So you could have a set of coordinates so you could get your bearings and know where you are in the midst of this smooth uh, space. Hence the importance of the invention of the compass and the present role of satellites as artificially fixed points of reference for striating the oceans. So that the whole GPA system is the ultimate example of a state mechanism of striation. The entire planet, now you can say, is striated from the state point of view. Um, but the sea, they say, maintains complex relations with these um, forces of striation. Uh, let me just skip some of this here. There's one example they're citing is what happens in the um, modern era with something like the strategic submarine, where the, the, the entire planet becomes a kind of smooth space but in the service of a kind of global war machine where strategic submarines occupy any point on the planet and are able to strike at any other point on the planet. Or another example they give is the tank, which is something like a land ship. It's, it, it turns a striated space into a smooth space so that anything in its path, it can simply go over. So, And there's been a recent study as well, apparently the... Um, IDF, yeah, where um, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces had apparently actually read the nominology and one of their ways of um, uh, attacking the Palestinian uh, villages was to create a smooth space, literally. So they would just, rather than fight out in the open, which would be dangerous, they would go into the homes and break down walls on the inside and construct a smooth space in the midst of the striations of, of you know, the Palestinian villages. Uh, which is to say, Everything they're outlining here is not some sort of ideal that's going to save everything. Everything they analyze from capitalism to territories and codes and states has a positive side and a negative side. So as I say at one point, don't think a smooth space is enough to save us. Because you can see in this case, it's, it's used to quite different purposes. But this is also why they call it the war machine. Um, so in any case, from the point of view of spatial categories, point, line, surface, the smooth and the striate can be, can be distinguished in three ways. There's an inverse relation between the point and the line. In striated space, the line is always between two points, whereas in smooth space, the point is between two lines, two trajectories. There's a difference in the nature of the line. 
in striated space, the line is dimensional and metric, whereas in smooth space, the line is directional and vectorial. And then uh, a different relation to the surface. In striated space, the surface is closed off, allocated, whereas in smooth space, things are distributed in an open space without dividing up the space itself. So that's the first way they get at the difference between the uh, war machine and the state. The second is uh, this arithmetic component, what they call the numbering number, which is uh, a reference to Spinoza and the difference between a numbered number and a numbering number, natura naturata and natura naturans. Uh, but it has to do with this question, how then, given this open space that the nomad occupies, how do you organize the people who live in that space? We talked about primitive societies and the idea of lineages and codes and kinship structures. That's how they constitute uh, people. In states, you have castes and classes. Uh, the question is now, what's the specificity of the organization of people in a war machine if the aim of the war machine is simply to occupy a smooth space? And their answer is that it's a numerical organization of people based on numbers. It's the way um, um, sort of military is organized. And it's often denounced, right, as, as treating people as mere numbers. Uh, but that's not their question. They say, look, this isn't a positive or a negative assessment here. The question is, what's the specificity of this organization of people in terms of number. Treating people like numbers, they say, is not necessarily worse than treating people like trees to prune or geometri geometrical figures to shape and model. So when the state appropriates the war machine, it necessarily appropriates this rather particular principle of numerical organization, dividing its army into decimal groupings of tens, hundreds, and thousands, units, companies, and divisions. But what's in question for them is why the specificity of the numerical organization of people, why is it connected to the nomadic mode of existence and the war machine function, and how is it distinct both from lineal codes, castes and so forth, and state overcoding? And here again they say if the specificity of numerical organization is difficult to isolate, it's because arithmetic, the number, has always played a decisive role in the state apparatus. If number played an important role in imperial bureaucracies, in census, taxation, elections, it takes on an even greater importance in the calculation techniques of modern societies, which apply the arithmetic element to primary matters, to raw materials, to the secondary matter of produced commodities, and perhaps most importantly, this is a Foucauldian point, to the ultimate matter of the human uh, population. Political economy, demography, the organization of work, all of these are subjected to statistical analyses, polls, all is his use of number in the service of a state apparatus. Thus, they say number has always served to gain mastery over matter, to control its variations and movements, in other words, to submit them to the spatio-temporal framework of the state. So number has been used to striate and control matter. In short, number became a means of counting or measuring the striations of space affected by the state apparatus. Now Deleuze's thesis is that in the nomadic system, this numerical principle takes on an autonomy that the state apparatus could at best only seek to control and put to its own use. The war machine does not utilize number as a means of measuring up a divided space. 
Instead, number takes on an independence in relation to space and becomes, as it were, an autonomous subject. It is number itself that becomes the mobile occupant of a smooth space. So you could say if there's a full body of the nomadic war machine parallel with the earth and the despot and capitalism, it's number. Number becomes the thing that occupies a smooth space. Number is no longer a means of counting or measuring, but of moving. If the war machine necessarily takes on an autonomous arithmetic organization, it is because it is no longer subordinate to the metric determinations and geometrical dimensions of striated space. Rather, number itself is distributed and displaced over a smooth space that it occupies without dividing or counting. It is precisely, so of course they're talking about taking people, and they have a long discussion of this, which I won't go through at all, but you start with the lineages of your territorial codes and you take a certain percentage of them uh, and constitute a war machine with them and you divide them into units and divisions and so forth, and it's this numerical organization of people that occupies the smooth space. That's the way people occupy a smooth space. Um, and it was precisely the autonomy of this numerical principle in relation to space that they gave the war machine its extraordinary mobility. An arithmetized social body gliding across a smooth space, swooping down upon the state like a flash from the outside. And on this score, Deleuze always cites two lines, one from Nietzsche and one from Kafka. Here's Nietzsche's line. They come like fate. So this is the image of the Mongols coming out of the steppes. They've organized themselves numerically. They've entered into their becoming animal. That there's a man-horse assemblage, which had never been seen before. That's why people talked about the Mongol centaurs. Like they looked like these animals they'd never seen before, horses with humans sitting on them. And they mobilized the speed of the horses, developed new weapons like longer swords, so you could just come at high speed and flick your sword, and it was like this path of destruction descending upon the states from the steppes. Uh, so that's what these quotes are getting at. They come like fate, without reason, consideration, or pretext. They appear as lightning appears, too terrible, too sudden, too convincing, too different, even to be hated. Where the Kafka line is this, in some way that is incomprehensible, they have pushed right into the capital. At any rate, here they are. It seems that every morning there are more of them, impossible to converse with them. They don't even though our language, even their horses, are meat eaters. Uh, but this is, um, you know, there's archaeological evidence where states just seem to disappear for no reason that's given in the archaeological record. And one of their points is that uh, almost certainly what happens is the constitution of a war machine out in the desert or steppe somewhere comes down and just like lightning destroys uh, a state. It comes out of nowhere and uh, there's hardly any record left of why the state disappeared or got uh, destroyed. Um, so they have a discussion of how exactly this, um, this takes place, but let me um, leave that to the side. Although this is the significance, uh, by the way, of the Old Testament book, the book of Numbers. It's a description of how Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt 
constituted their war machine. It was the uh, instructions on how to organize uh, the war machine in the desert in terms of number. Uh, let me skip that, and I'm also going to skip this section on weapons and tools, which is um, very interesting to me. Essentially, they try to define a difference between weapons and tools, but say it's it's in the end uh, reducible to the particular assemblage in which a tool or a weapon is caught up, whether it's a war machine or a state. Um, in the interest of going quickly, let me turn now to the third question, which is the question of war. So exteriority. The war machine is not only external to the state, but it functions on a line of flight. In other words, it's constantly externalizing itself. In other words, it doesn't have a territory. Right? That's why the, the Mongols are constantly ex they're following a directional vector. They're just in movement. And the problem of the relation between nomadism and states is not that they're necessarily antagonistic, but when you have a numerical body following a particular vector open and open, over an open space, it's inevitably going to encounter striations that block its movement. And those striations are necessarily a state form. So this is why they say a nomadic war machine is by its very organization, by its very principle, opposed to the state doesn't necessarily want to fight the state or be against the state, but their principles are opposed. So if a directional vector traveling in open space hits a striation, it destroys it, or it's at least opposed to it. Or at least then the striation will attempt to incorporate and appropriate the war machine uh, in its own manner in order to neutralize it. So that's the question we get to here with this, uh, the question of war. What's the relationship between the war machine and the state apparatus? And more specifically, what's the relationship between the war machine and war? So here's the first question they ask. Is war, then, the object of the war machine? And their first response to this is no. If the war machine is the invention of the nomad, it is because the war machine is the constitutive element of smooth space the occupation of this space, displacement within this space in terms of vectors and directional lines, and the corresponding composition of the people who move across these lines, numerical rather than lineal. This nomos, right, or this set of traits or characteristics, is the only positive object of the war machine. Its aim is to make the desert, the steppe, grow and not depopulate it. So the only positive definition of the war machine is the occupation of a smooth space, following directional vectors, and this numerical composition of people who follow these vectors. So no, war is not the object of the war machine. So it's a bit of a misnomer. But then their second response is this. Is war the object of the war machine? Their second response is yes. And for the reasons I was getting at just a second ago, if war necessarily results, it is because the war machine collides with states and cities as forces of striation that necessarily oppose its positive object, which is nothing but the occupation of a smooth space. It is only at this point that the war machine becomes war, takes as its enemy the state and the city and its striations, and adopts as its objective their annihilation, to destroy the striations and return it to a smooth space. War is therefore not the primary or positive object of the war machine, but a second-order, supplementary, synthetic, and negative object. Or rather, the war machine is, as it were, the inevitable outgrowth of nomadic 
organization. The campaigns of Attila, of Genghis Khan, and Moses all illustrate, he says, the progress, this progressive progression from the positive object to the negative object. So they give what I think is a great example and is this rereading of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The Israelites leave behind the imperial, despotic Egyptian state and launch out into the desert of Sinai, following their own line of flight, where Moses begins by forming a war machine using the numerical principle, the book of Numbers, which does not have war as its object. But he then realizes in stages that war is the necessary supplement of that machine because it encounters cities and states, it has to send ahead spies, and finally it has to take things to extreme, a war of annihilation. Moses and the Jewish people shrink before the revelation of this supplement to their war machine, to their nomadic existence, fearing they are not strong enough. So Yahweh destroys this reticent generation. If you read the book of Numbers, it's you know, Yahweh, the God of wrath. People complaining, why did you bring us out into the desert to die here? We should have stayed in Egypt. And he kills them. <laughs> A few months later, they complain again, and he kills them. Um, that's the 40 years wandering that they're condemned to until the entire generation dies out. Uh, then Joshua is assigned the task of waging war, and they enter the promised land and destroy everything. You know, the famous Jericho, and they march around, because these are forces of striation, the cities that stand in the path of this war machine that has been constituted out in the desert. So the conquest of you know, the promised land is essentially the conquest of a striated land by a war machine who annihilates all the striations that stand in its path. Later, after the conquest, the establishment of a state and a king, which is Saul and then King David, will be seen as a betrayal of this nomadic machine and a reversion to the type of imperial social formations found in the neighboring empires, including the Egyptian empire they had left behind. So the establishment of a kingdom in Israel, and even in the biblical text, uh, was problematic because there's this clear awareness of the distinction between a nomadic organization and a state. So the question of war, then, has less to do with the war machine per se than with the relations between the war machine and the state apparatus. And this is the next point they make, because just as war is not the object of the war machine, neither is war the positive objects of states. They say quite the contrary. Most archaic states seem not to have had a war machine, their domination being based on other agencies like police and so forth. And one of the reasons of their annihilation often was the, uh, when a uh, war machine swooped down upon them. But this means that one of the biggest questions from the point of view of universal history, which is what they're interested in here, is then, because there's two options, either the war machine destroys the state, or there's this other option. The state can appropriate the war machine for its own in order to save itself from the annihilation that would threaten it from the war machine. So this is the question. Under what conditions can and does the state appropriate the war machine? Because when the state appropriates the war machine, 
The war machine then changes its nature and function. The war machine takes on war as its object, as its primary and analytic object. And war then becomes subordinated to the political aims of the state and is directed not only against other states, but then back against the nomads themselves. So this part of, yeah, part of the point they're getting at is something that is still with us today, that military organizations, even in states, have a kind of autonomy that is not completely tied to the civilian apparatus, right? which is why coups often are done by the military institution, because even though it's been appropriated by the state, it has an autonomous organization and function that is not a state organization and function. And if it decides to, even if it's being run by a state, that war machine can destroy the state or take over the state. So even though states have appropriated war machines, they are not identical. This is why it's hard to get at what they're talking about here, because we tend to think of this army as an apparatus that simply belongs to the state. And their whole point is that it does not. It's been appropriated by the state in a particular form, but it fundamentally operates according to different uh, principles. And you get the same problem on the other side. You have great uh, nomadic war machines like Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan, and this is why they're almost looked at badly from the point of view of history, because they undertake these immense conquests, but then they don't know what to do with conquered lands. You know, Alexander, you know, the splinters, like within a matter of years, and he conquers half the world. Why? Because a war machine is not a state. And Alexander is leading war machine, but he has no freaking idea how to constitute a state, because that's not what he's doing. And so you conquer these immense uh, territories, but then there's no state apparatus to be put there in order to sort of maintain them, striate them, interiorize them. Uh, Deleuze at one point says this also about uh, Yasser Arafat. Uh, what did Arafat do for the Palestinians? We didn't really have a territory, although they sort of had a territory, but not a real territory. He said it was a constitution of a war machine. You know, occupy a smooth space, things keep getting destroyed, it's okay. It was a war machine that Yasser Arafat uh, constituted in the Palestinian lands, but of course then he was not the person to talk about a Palestinian state, which is why it never seemed to go anywhere with Arafat, because he had constituted things completely differently uh, in order uh, to ensure the survival of the Palestinian uh, people. So this is why I think this is a great chapter, because they're trying to isolate something that's hard to isolate, because it's always, it's always been co-opted, so to speak, by something else, or it's been, it's mutating. But the whole point of this war machine section is that there's a specificity and autonomy to the war machine that, even though it can be appropriated by the state, is fundamentally different from the state and operates on fundamentally uh, different principles, um, which is why history is written as a succession of states. And the nomads are often seen as people like, it's just like primitives. They're seen as like lesser people. Why? Because they didn't know how to constitute a state. <laughs> uh, and that's seen as a mark against them. And they're trying to get rid of that and say, no, there's, there's a specificity to the war machine that's um, positive. So here, too, they have some analyses of how states go about appropriating war machine, the various forms in which it's done. You have mercenary armies, conscripted armies, professional armies. You have to create a military institution within the state. You have to have its own taxes and, um, and so forth. And so there are a whole complex set of mechanisms by which the state can appropriate the war machine, and they get into details there. But um, uh, 
I'll let you read that. And let me, before I move on, let me just read this, this one quote as well from Nietzsche, which is not something they um, quote, nor do they say this. I have this little theory that I think the war machine is Deleuze and Guattari's attempt to think through uh, in, in a collective form what Nietzsche was talking about with the overman or an active form of existence because you know it seems to be a very individuated thing in Nietzsche that you you know you have to overcome your reactivity and become active but it, uh, in Nietzsche it's almost impossible to give that a collective formation because that would be for him a reversion to a kind of herd morality so it's almost always individual individuated and the question here is more or less asking what's the collective form of the active type or the collective form of the overman. Does it simply have to be individual? They think not, because if you can't collectivize that sort of revolutionary movement, then you're just going to have these little local operations, but not a collective organization. In fact, Deleuze says in an interview when he was thinking about the war machine, we need to be centrists. We need to be more centrist than the centrists. Like if we don't have a collective revolutionary organization that we can think about, talk about, and point to, then everything's screwed from the start. And that's what they're trying to get at here, a collective, organized social formation that is based on principles that are the opposite of the principles upon which the state is based. Because unless you have that, every revolutionary movement will simply be immediately co-opted by the state. So that's what they've been looking for here. And this is this quote from Nietzsche. History shows the strong races decimate one another through war, thirst for power, adventurousness, the strong affects, wastefulness, strength is no longer hoarded, spiritual disturbance arises through excessive tension, their existence is costly. In brief, they ruin one another. Periods of profound exhaustion and torpor supervene. All great ages are paid for. The strong are subsequently weaker, more devoid of will, more absurd than the weak average. They are races that squander, Duration as such has no value. One might well prefer a shorter but more valuable existence for the species. We stand before a problem of economics. So the way they're answering two questions here, it's not only what's an organization that stands opposed to the state apparatus, but also the question of why do these organizations tend to very quickly be co-opted, even if they have an autonomy by a state apparatus. And it's for these reasons that Nietzsche is outlining. They tend to be swift, quick. The Mongols come down on this directional vector and destroy the states. But the very principle upon which they are based means that they don't territorialize. They're not interested in endurance and making things endure. It's this flash that then quickly disappears. So it's built into the nature of the war machine, and that is, in principle, quickly co-opted by um, the state. So I think it's one of the brilliant things about this analysis. There's an autonomy to the war machine. Uh, there's a specificity to the war machine. But one of the specificities of the war machine is that it's easily appropriated by the state, despite its autonomy. Uh, and just a couple of final points, and then I'll be done. Inevitably, Deleuze and Atari compare this notion of the war machine with that of Clausewitz. Anytime anyone talks about war, <laughs> you've got you to go to Clausewitz's uh, famous formula. War is the continuation of politics by other means. That's Clausewitz's uh, famous thesis, which is derived from a complex uh, set of theoretical and practical ideas, which are this. 
if you want to summarize and then see how Deleuze and Guattari sort of adapt Clausewitz to their own ends. Clausewitz says, one, three points. He says, there's a pure concept of war as an absolute, unconditioned, total war to eliminate the enemy, an idea that is never given in experience. Second point, what is given in experience are real wars subordinated to state aims which condition the realization of this pure idea in experience and which are therefore better or worse conductors, as he says, in relation to this pure idea of the total war. His third point then, real wars tend to oscillate between two poles, a war of annihilation, which tends to approach this unconditioned concept of a total war through a kind of ascent uh, toward the idea, a kind of escalation to total war. People have often pointed this out once a war gets started. There's an autonomy to the idea of war, and the, the war just escalates because that's its internal principle. That's what Clausewitz is saying. Once you start down the path of war, the idea kicks in because that's what war is. Or there's this pulling back, which is almost delivered by states to a more limited war, a descent toward limiting conditions, de-escalation toward something like armed observation, say, in, in Korea. So this is Clausewitz's idea. This is war is governed, regulated in a Kantian sense by this idea of total war, which either it approaches or retreats from. Deleuze and Guattari accept this distinction between absolute war as a pure idea and real wars, but they say it has to be reformulated from their point of view according to different criterion. The pure idea, they say, is not that of the abstract elimination of the adversary, which would be total war in Clausewitz's sense, but that of a war machine that does not have war as its object that maintains only the supplementary relationship with war. In other words, no nomadic war machine, from their point of view, and this is why they posit it in this way, with its own objects, with its own way of occupying space, with its numerical composition of people, is the content adequate to the idea. In other words, it's not an idea of war, per se. It's the idea of this particular constitution of a nomadic war machine with its orientation in space, its numerical organization of people, and so forth. But secondly, they add, as an immediate consequence of this, that it is therefore the nomads who remain an abstraction. The pure nomad, they say, does not exist. This is not only because elements of nomadism always enter into de facto mixes with other elements, migrants, migration, people who don't remain immoral, immobile but move elsewhere, itinerancy, the state which can appropriate the war machine and which act upon the war machine and like they say with the primitive societies having a foreboding of the state and capitalism that would destroy them, the same is true of the war machine. From the start in the war machine there are vectors leading to its appropriation by the state or these de facto, de facto mixes with other social formations. Even in the purity of its concept, they say, the nomadic war machine necessarily effectuates its relation with war as a supplement, which is developed in opposition to the state form, but it cannot effectuate this supplementary object without the state, in turn, finding the means to appropriate the war machine, making war its direct object, and then turning the war machine back against the nomads themselves. Thus, they say, the integration of the nomad into the state is a vector traversing nomadism from the start 
from the very first act of war against the state. So this is coming back to the whole sort of typological and topological aspect of Deleuze and Guattari's political theory. It's a matter of creating pure concepts of types as social formations. Primitives, states, capitalism, war machine, but then showing how they necessarily enter into various synthetic topological relations of coexistence. So the concepts are pure, you might say. They have a consistency of their own, but they enter into these de facto mixes constantly. So here's the importance then of the war machine for Deleuze and Guattari, and I think the reason it takes such a large role in this second volume of capitalism and schizophrenia. The two axioms that guide their analyses are first that the war machine is exterior to the um, state apparatus, and secondly that the war machine was an invention of the nomads, even if from the start it displayed vectors that allowed it to enter into composition with the state. But what defines the assemblage of the war machine is not the nomad, but a constellation of characteristics such as the construction and occupation of smooth space, vectorial displacement, numerical constitution, and so on. It is this constellation of traits that defines the nomad who brought about their concrete actualization at a particular moment and not the reverse. The nomad, in other words, does not hold the secret of the war machine. Today, then they say, other phenomena are capable of actualizing a war machine other than nomads, which include for them worldwide ecumenical movements. In other words, we have a capitalist system, the capitalist axiomatic, that's dominant everywhere. Uh, within that, we have states as models of realization of that axiomatic. Capitalism moves toward the schizophrenic limit. It's constantly decoding flows. The state is this model of realization that axiomatizes those flows, controls those flows, codes them, although it's not strictly speaking coding. There are nonetheless neo-territorialities within all of this, which are reversions back to old codes. All the fundamentalisms, uh, you know, family values, retreat back into religion, why religion comes to the fore, it's, an, it's a reaction against the decoding that capitalism operates. The states can axiomatize and regulate, but you can also revert back to various types of coding in the period, in, in the capitalist period, even though, uh, even though capitalism itself is a function of decoding, it's precisely in response to that, that people want to fall back on archaic codes, because they seem to offer a, a, a sort of positive movement against uh, capitalism. And then there are war machines operating within this field, which are no longer the war machines of nomads, but other formations that effectuate this occupation of smooth space. And so they give various examples like worldwide ecumenical movements, uh, religious movements, I want to say Catholic Church in some ways, even though it's a complete institution at one level, can nonetheless constitute a war machine at another level. Local mechanisms such as gangs and bands, uh, minority and popular movements, even scientific and artistic movements, they say, all of these are equally capable of actualizing a potential war machine that remains external to the state apparatus. So I'm just going to give you three examples that they give, sort of obvious ones, about how the war machine gets effectuated in some of its more obvious ways. The most obvious one is uh, 
you know, the military-industrial complex, which is obvious. Uh, but a second one they give is um, the example of fascism and what happens under Hitler, because they think it's one of these extreme cases where a state appropriated the war machine for its own. But it's an instance where eventually the war machine itself took over the state. So there's the famous telegram that Hitler gives at the end of the war, Telegram 71, if the war is lost, then let the nation perish. So the state appropriated the war machine, but to the point where the war machine took over the state, if the war was over, well, the war machine is going to do what it always does. It's just going to fizzle out and not constitute a state. So fascism became a very uh, uh, particular form of state-war machine uh, relations. And then in the Cold War, they say the states appropriated this war machine to such a degree that they tended to unleash an immense war machine of which they, the states, were no longer anything more than opposed or opposable parts. This is what they called a worldwide war machine, which no longer had war as its primary object, but rather peace, the whole idea of deterrence. The war machine reformed a smooth space that spread out over the entire earth, the sea, the air, the atmosphere, the submarines, the strategic bombers. Taking charge of the political aim of worldwide order, it itself appropriated the states as the objects or means adapted to that war machine, which now had peace as its object rather than war. It is at this point that Clausewitz's formula becomes effectively reversed. Politics can be said to be the continuation of war by other means. It was the peace of deterrence that technologically freed up the material process of total war, promoting and installing a new conception of security as a materialized war, a kind of organized insecurity or a programmed catastrophe. The war machine assigned to itself a peace more terrifying than death, the peace of terror or survival, maintaining and instigating the most terrible of local wars as part of itself, wars that became a part of this peace. That was the peace of a war machine. And itself appropriating the states as, if, as its component elements. It created a new type of enemy, no longer another state, but what they called the unspecified enemy. It's the terrorist, the unspecified X that could just pop up at any moment, which therefore required this worldwide war machine apparatus to be ready whenever this unspecified enemy would appear. It's no longer the enemy of the state, but the enemy of the unspecified enemy. In this way, the war machine, particularly during the Cold War, can be said to have reigned over the entire capitalist axiomatic, like the power of the continuum that surrounded the world economy, surpassing the power of the states and the axiomatic to effectively control it. So they're just three examples of the interrelations between war machines, states, capital. Fascism, where the war machine takes over a state. During the Cold War, you have the construction of a kind of globalized war machine that took its aim no longer war, but peace, and so forth. All of which is to show that, uh, how this, this system is functioning. And maybe I'll just uh, end with this, some quick conclusions on how to put all these together, because these are just examples to show that they, they develop concepts of primitive societies, territorial societies, states, which are overcoding societies, capitalism, which is a great, great decoding formation, 
the war machine, which is um, functions on the basis of the exteriority of relations and therefore is opposed to the state and will destroy the state if it comes into contact with it, but which the state can therefore appropriate. And then the question is, how do all these function uh, together? And so the aim of giving all these concepts is simply to give uh, you know, the tools for disentangling the various lines and dimensions of what they call our social assemblage, which is why the notion of an assemblage or agencement is their basic minimal unit of analysis. Every social formation is assemblage. The question is, an assemblage is always a mixed state, a multiplicity of heterogeneous elements arranged according to various lines, dimensions, directional components, all functioning at the same time. So you have in the capitalist system states here, neo-territorialities here, a war machine here, all of which can take on different forms at different times depending on the relations of coexistence they maintain with each other. So a war machine can be appropriated by a state in the form of an army. It can take over the state in the case of fascism. It become, can become a worldwide war machine as in during the Cold War. Which means this, uh, for Deleuze, when I, uh, to, to, to say this philosophically. Um, here's a quote. He says, we have had done with all globalizing concepts. Concepts have value only in their variables and in the maximum number of variables that they allow. So when Deleuze insists on the consistency of concepts, it's not because they gather together particulars under something general or bring things into harmonious whole. It's because concepts are always related to the variables that de determine their own mutations. <laughs> And this is another quote. It is not a matter of bringing all sorts of things under a single concept, but rather of relating each concept to the variables that explain its mutations. So, of course, this has to be the case in Deleuze. If concepts had an identity of their own that persisted once you've constructed the concept, you would lose the very differential nature of the very type of philosophy that Deleuze is trying to do. So concepts themselves cannot have an unchanging identity of their own. They can have a consistency. But that consistency is defined by the variables and mutations that take place internal to the concept. So they can say at one and the same time, there has never been but one state. And we define that state by a consistent concept. And the consistency of that concept is that it's an apparatus of capture. And yet, by the very consistency of that concept, then they can chart out the mutations of that state form from an apparatus of capture that captures by overcoding and deterritorializing, which is the barbaric state, to the state as it functions within capitalism, imminent to capitalism, as a model of realization of capitalism that codes flows but in an entirely different way through an axiomatic, a single concept with a huge set of internal variations. Same thing with the war machine. It's the invention of the nomads who at a particular historical time actualize a war machine in space, but that war machine can be actualized at other places, at other times, by other forms. Any time you have the construction of a smooth space, you have a potential war machine. Whether it's in a scientific movement, an artistic movement, a religious movement, a war movement, all it takes to be a war machine is that it includes these 
um, components that they've outlined, the construction of smooth space, directional vectors rather than dimensional ones, uh, and so forth. The problem with Marxism, they said, when it tried to analyze assemblages, is that it did so in terms of a dialectic of oppositions and contradictions. And it may, it remained unaware, this is a quote, unaware of far more subtle and subterranean differential mechanisms, topological displacements, typological variations. And although Deleuze and Guattari propose a much more complex analysis of assemblages, their concepts in no way constitute a set of universal coordinates that are given once and for all. They have no other meaning than to make possible the estimation of a continuous variation. Primitive societies, states, war machines, and capitalism do not mark out a historical progression, but trace a topology in which each of these types exist in a perpetual field of interaction. The time of becoming is always a time of actualization on a topological field, giving rise to states in one neighborhood, a war machine in another, a territorial regime in another, always interacting with the same processes being taken up elsewhere under new conditions with new mixtures. And this is a quote from Deleuze. All that history does is to translate a coexistence of becomings into its succession. So it's a critique that some people make of Deleuze that he's not a historicist. He doesn't really do history. And in a sense, what he's saying is that's true because all history does is translate a coexistence of becomings, meaning these becomings of a state becoming a war machine, a state becoming something else within capitalism. These are all becomings internal to the consistency of a concept functioning on a topological field. All that history does is translate this coexistence of becomings into a succession. And then, last point. What remains primary in any society for Deleuze, then, are its lines of flight, as he calls them. The continuous variations of abstract flows. So this is getting back to the question we began with. Why does Deleuze say <coughs> uh, the theory of society is a generalized theory of flows? Because at bottom, any social formation, you know, it's like a bag you know, filled with water that's just leaking in all directions. And what's primary are these leaks, these lines of flight which are these decoded flows. Every social formation, even capitalism, which functions closest to these decoded flows, has as its terrifying nightmare the dread of a flow that would be purely decoded. So it's the problem that every society is trying to resolve, which means at bottom, the central issue for Deleuze are lines of flight, which is his way of describing these decoded flows, and the various ways they are stratified, integrated, striated, controlled, taken up into a social um, formation. So when then Deleuze asks, to go back then to what we were saying about desire, when he says, well, what are your desiring machines? He means to say that any entity, whether it's an individual or a collective, is an assemblage with its various lines and dimensions. So whether you're looking at a society or an individual, you ask the same question. How is it functioning? Where are your molar stratifications, the state form where you yourself are being overcoded and want to be overcoded and desire your own repression? 
where are the more molecular, subtle kinds of movement where a threshold is crossed and you start breaking down somehow. This is where Deleuze likes to cite that story of F. Scott's, Scott Fitzgerald, you know, the breakdown, where F. Scott Fitzgerald is a great writer, he's at the height of his career, he's Zelda, everything seems to be going well, perfectly for him, he has fame and fortune, and then he cracks up. <laughs> And then he writes about it. And that's a molecular question in your desiring machine. What happened when on the molar level everything seemed to be perfect and everyone loves you and you're writing well and yet some little crack in the plate takes place at a molecular level and something happens to your uh, desiring machine. And then at the bottom, I don't know if it's spatial, it's spatializing it, where are the lines of flight, whether in you or in a collectivity, that opens up a kind of fundamental rupture? you know, a fundamental uh, mutation somewhere where everything changes and you go elsewhere. That's what he means by asking, how do desiring machines function? Right? Where are you overcoded? What are your codes? Because they're all functioning together in you and in any other, in any society. And one last point on this, and then I'll be done. Because uh, someone was asking about, um, or Winter too was talking about the history you know, of desire. Um, Because the great, the person who really changed the sort of ancient Platonic conceptions of desire um, was Kant. Kant, from Deleuze's point of view, was the first philosopher to define desire not in terms of lack, but in terms of production. Uh, and his definition in the second critique, the critique of practical reason, of the faculty of desire is this. He says, desire is the faculty that given a representation in my mind is capable of producing the object that corresponds to that representation. <laughs> Man, I remember when I read that and I thought, well, that's magic. I don't get what that means. Desire is the faculty that given a representation in your mind is capable of producing the object that corresponds to that representation. That is the basis of the entire second critique. Because Kant says there are only three faculties in the world. There's knowledge, desire, and the feeling of pleasure and pain. Knowledge implies a relationship between representations and what they designate out there. That's what the first critique is about. What are the conditions of knowledge? Then he has this causal relation of desire. Given a representation, I can actually produce the object. And then the critique of judgment has to do with the feeling of pleasure and pain. I see an artwork and it gives me joy and I say it's beautiful. And that's it. So it's a representation related to my vital capacity, you know, up or down. It's a pleasure or pain. He says, that's it. Those are the three faculties that we have. And he therefore writes three critiques. So the question is, for me, just to contextualize this, uh, because I think you can see anti-Oedipus then from this point of view as a rewriting of the critique of practical reason in a very straightforward manner. The only thing he disagrees with, with Kant, well, not the only things, but uh, <laughs> major, what he agrees with in Kant is that desire is productive because that's how Kant defines desire. It produces the object corresponding to the representation. What does he mean by that? That's his way of defining freedom. Because if I have a representation in my mind, I'm going to kill you, and then I kill you, I have, out of my freedom, produce the object corresponding to my representation. So unless desire has this 
causality associated with it, it's not practical. Now what Kant does that Deleuze is going to disagree with is say there are two types of desire. There's a lower form of desire where desire just produces psychic mechanisms, you know, produces fantasies and hallucinations. But then there's a higher form of desire which operates rationally according to the postulates of practical reason. And that higher form of desire is simply called the will. But in Kant, the will as a form of desire is simply desire subordinates to the, uh, subordinate to the postulates of practical reason, which are the self or the soul, the world, and God, which are precisely the three transcendent notions that Kant himself had already critiqued in the first critique as illusions. So what Deleuze does, I think, in anti-Oedipism is why he reverts to that notion of syntheses and the three syntheses that come straight out of Kant. What's the imminent content of the self, the world, and God? They are simply modes of synthesis. The notion of the world is based on a causal synthesis. X causes Y causes Z. When we get to the notion of the world, it's simply when we think about causal nexus taken as a whole. But we can never really conceive that causal nexus taken as a whole. That's an illusion. When we talk about the world or the universe, the totality of what is, it's something we can think by simply extending this idea of a causal network to infinity, but it's not something we can ever really know. It's a fiction we invent, and the reality of that fiction is simply the problematic nexus of causal relations that we really do not have knowledge of. So Deleuze does the same thing in the second critique. He says, well then, get rid of these transcendent postulates of practical reason. There is no self, there's no world, there's no God. If you want to see the truly imminent movement of desire, go back to what Kant himself said are the actual problematic real conditions of which self, world, and God are the illusions created by reason in order to think them. So you have a connective synthesis which lies at the origin of the world, you have a conjunctive synthesis that lies at the origin of the self, and you have a disjunctive synthesis, a little more complicated, but that's what Kant says, that lies at the origin of the notion of God. So in a sense, Deleuze is simply rewriting the critique of practical reason by saying, I'm going to take Kant's structure and simply, in his own terms, say, here's the imminent movement of desire. It's just synthetic. There's no higher form to which it's subordinate. There's no moral law. There's no God, world, and self functioning as the postulates of this movement of desire. I'm just going to look at it in its pure imminence. Uh, so that's one way, at least, to think of sort of bringing this all full circle of, of seeing what he's doing. It's a movement of desire. Desire is productive, but it's a purely imminent principle, never raised to a higher power like the will. Anyway, that's all I have to say. Okay.